Our Old Testament reading this morning is taken from Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verses 1 to 17. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you only, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now come to the New Testament reading. It is from the first letter of John, 1, 5 to 2, 2. Walking in the light. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Before I retired, I'd been in the Baptist ministry for 39 years. 
And uh, during that time, I had been a mental health chaplain for some 17 years, 11 years part-time and six years full-time. There were three main aspects to my work as a chaplain. Obviously, I was responsible for leading some of the services in hospital chapels and wards. I also did pastoral visiting of patients individually. Something I was asked to do right from the beginning was a little bit extra, and I hadn't expected it. I was asked to facilitate a therapy group which was a discussion group led by the chaplain and uh, with another nurse in attendance as well. And the uh, patients were encouraged to ask any questions that they liked, and they did. I was very intrigued by the frequency with which the word guilt came up. This was not only in the group, but also in my a visitation of the individual patients. Now, I, as a uh, Baptist minister, was quite convinced that I had the answer to this problem that came up very frequently. The answer, of course, is you confess what you've done wrong to God and ask him to forgive you and all is well. But it didn't seem to work like that. I had a number of conversations with patients that went something along these lines. This is not a a conversation with an actual patient, but a conversation, a, a sort of compilation of several conversations that I had. And it goes like this. The patient would say, I feel so guilty. And I would say to him or her, God can forgive every kind of wrongdoing. And the patient would say, yes, I know that. So I would then say, well, have you asked God to forgive you? And the patient would say, yes, I have. And then I would say, and do you believe that God has forgiven you? And the patient would say, yes, I do. Then I began to run out of ideas. So I would ask this question, then what is the problem? The answer would come, I don't feel forgiven. Obviously I realised that even though I was a Christian minister with a hotline to God and an easy answer to this question, I just was getting nowhere. I decided to look into it a little bit more carefully. And actually, I've been investigating this problem ever since. What I want to do with you this morning is to share with you some of my discoveries, which hopefully will provide some answers to the question I've raised, maybe a question in your own mind. I hope also that what I have to say will help you if you are suffering from unresolved feelings of guilt or if somebody says to you, as they said to me, I'm feeling very guilty and you want to know how you might be able to help them by saying appropriate things. 
I've called this message, therefore, a feeling of forgiveness. And of course, forgiveness is to do with guilt. And I think we need a definition of guilt. And there are two aspects to guilt. The first is an objective aspect, the state of responsibility for wrongdoing. Perhaps in a court of law, somebody may say to you, you are guilty of this wrongdoing. Or subjectively, you feel guilty. And it's a feeling of responsibility for doing something wrong. So then I want to take this a little bit further. What then do we mean by doing wrong? Well, I believe that doing wrong is the breaking of widely accepted standards of behavior and personally accepted standards of behavior. And of course, this is what the Bible calls sin, doing what we've been told is wrong. I realize that sin is a very unpopular word these days. I honestly don't care what you call it. You can call it sin, you can call it wrongdoing, you can call it offending against the law, you can call it what you like. But the reality is that human beings, we all are capable of doing wrong if we are honest about ourselves. A Christian historian 50 years ago penned these words as he looked at the world and the history of the world. He said, one of the greatest deficiencies of our time is the failure of the imagination or the intellect to bring home to itself the portentous character of human sin. As I say, that was written 50 years ago. But I believe it's absolutely true today. And I don't think you have to look very far into the world. The news that we watched on the television last night was enough to depress anybody. All that is being done wrong in the world, it's horrendous. But you see, I don't want us to look only outwardly. I want us to look at our own wrongdoing. It may not be serious in the eyes of other people. It may not be even serious in our own eyes. But the fact is that when we have done wrong, we need to be forgiven. And if there is anything standing in the way of that, we need to deal with it. Here's my first main point then, lingering guilt. Sometimes feelings of guilt are so great that they can make a person ill. And obviously I was dealing with people in uh, mental hospital units that sometimes their guilt had made them ill. And uh, I realize that that is a long way on a scale of guilt. But there is still guilt that doesn't make us ill and guilt that needs to be dealt with. But I want to share with you the story of somebody I'm going to call Chaz. That's not his real name. 
he shared with me in a recorded interview why his feelings of guilt had made him ill. He told me that he'd had an affair which had led to the breakdown of his marriage. It had led to divorce, and eventually he married the lady with whom he had had the affair. And he said this about his guilt. He said, the guilt arises from the betrayal of my ex-wife. The betrayal of a friend, namely my wife's ex-husband. And the third thing in the guilt is the impact my separation has had on my daughter. There'd been no history of divorce or marriage separation in my family. I was the first one. I just felt I'd let everybody down. Now, as I say, there is a sliding scale, and and, and people don't always feel as guilty as that. But we all feel guilty from time to time, except the psychopath, who by definition is a person who doesn't feel guilt for the things that he or she does wrong. I want to ask this question, then, is guilt a bad thing? Well, as I've already said, it can certainly be bad, but it can also be good. good. Why? Well, because without feelings of guilt, we human beings would be very likely to do what we like, when we like, and where we like, regardless of the consequences to other people. And it's because of the consequences that sometimes we see our wrongdoing has had on other people that we feel guilty. Although we can feel guilty even though other people haven't been aware of any consequences. One writer puts it like this. He says, guilt and guilty fear have played an important role in the survival of society. Without an appropriate amount of guilt there would be no civilization. A shrewd comment. On the other hand, guilt can be bad if it's excessive and uh, if it lingers, if it leads to illness or if it's unresolved or if it's false guilt where there's actually been no wrongdoing. Now, I'm not going to deal with false guilt this morning because it's a topic on its own. And where does guilt come from? Well, of course, it comes from what we call our conscience. And where does conscience come from? Well, there are various views about where conscience comes from. One view that is usually held by Christians, and I don't disagree with it, is that conscience is a God-given faculty that, as it were, is given to us when we were born. I, as I say, don't want to disagree with that, but I want to expand it and explain it a little. Because my own view is that there is a threefold origin of conscience. I think conscience starts in the inborn, the God-given need to love and be loved. We want to have the approval of other people. We want to be in relations with relationships with them. And we realize if we do wrong, it can actually hinder and break even relationships. But on top of that, 
there is the instruction we get about right and wrong from our parents, from our teachers, from our church. And then on top of that as well, there is the experience of reward and punishment. When we do good, we're complimented or we're rewarded. And when we do wrong, we tend to be rebuked or even punished. I believe this is how conscience is given and develops in our human experience. It's interesting how some things that have happened a long, long time ago uh, stick in the mind. And um, one of the things that has stuck in my mind is a retired Church of England minister whose name was G.R. Harding Wood, who turned up one summer when I was uh, a worker on a beach mission in Perranporth in North Cornwall. And this man has spent a lifetime not only as a Church of England minister, but as a children's evangelist. And he was very experienced and very wise. Though he was in his 80s, he still was able to hold the attention of children. I'll never forget one beach service. He said, I'm going to bring you an invisible visual aid. I thought to myself immediately, this is never going to work. You know, when they see that there's nothing there, he'll lose their attention. But I, he was brilliant. We were riveted to this invisible visual aid all through his talk. But he also gave a talk to the, us workers about communicating the good news of Jesus to children. How you need to uh, use the simplest possible words to get the Christian message across. And he said, how do you explain conscience to children? And he said, this is the way I do it. I talk about that naughty feeling inside. Do you know, I don't think I could do better than that myself. All the great long definitions that you can read in dictionaries and books of psychology, that naughty feeling inside. Sometimes it reminds us that we have done wrong, and sometimes it stops us in advance from doing wrong. And it's so helpful, as we have noted, it is the basis of human relationships Indeed, the basis of human beings living together in society. Now, here's my second main point. It's going to be three, I'll tell you, so you know where you're going. Possible hindrances. Why does the guilt feeling linger sometimes? Why don't we feel forgiven? I want to tell you something that happened to me just a few weeks ago. It's important for you to know that I am absolutely no good at DIY. I tremble when things go wrong in the house and I know that I ought to be attending to them and some of them I know are completely beyond me but some of them I think I will try to have a go. Well, a few weeks ago, one of the basins in our home stopped letting the water drain away. It was obviously a blockage. 
And I suspected that, you know, if I was lucky, the blockage was be in the U-bend. Well, that meant I got to dismantle the U-bend. And uh, you can make a terrible mess if you dismantle the U-bend and don't take proper precautions. Well, eventually, I successfully managed to uh, unscrew the U-bend and take it out. And, of course, it was full of gunge. So I cleaned out the gunge, and I had a clean U-bend, and then I tried to put it back. Well, it took me ages, but eventually I realized what I was doing wrong, and uh, yes, it went up, and I screwed the two ends of it, and there it was, and it's worked perfectly ever since, I'm glad to say. And how did I feel afterwards? Well, great feeling of relief great feeling of success. Now, there are possible hindrances why we don't feel forgiven. And I want to give you just one or two this morning that might be applicable. The first is that uh, we may want or intend to repeat the wrongdoing. So, of course, we don't feel forgiven. We're not prepared to give it up. Or we may be blaming somebody else for making us do something wrong. Wasn't this the problem right at the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden? God said to Adam, what have you done? You've eaten forbidden fruit. And Adam said, Eve made me. Blame the wife. So God says, right, Eve, what have you done? And Eve says, the snake made me, shifting the blame. And thirdly, we may have a hostile and unforgiving attitude to another person who has done wrong to us. And we don't receive forgiveness but because we're not prepared to give it. And Jesus highlighted this particular issue in words in Matthew chapter 6 when he points out that it's very difficult for people who won't forgive others to receive forgiveness themselves. Now again, this is a very, very difficult subject, but I'm not going to go into it in any depth this morning. But even those of us who find it difficult, perhaps we need some professional help. Now, there's another possible hindrance, and it is that we may feel that our guilt is an appropriate punishment for the thing that we've done wrong. So we cling on to the guilt and feel that perhaps it sort of atones for something that we've done wrong. Or maybe there's another possible hindrance that uh, we caused damage or loss by doing something wrong, and we need to uh, make reparation for that, and we haven't done it yet. Or another possible uh, hindrance is that we may have a perfectionist personality and we just cannot accept that we've fallen from our own high standards. Now that's so important. I'm going to talk about that next time I need a service here, which is in the middle of February. I won't go into that in detail this morning. And another point and uh, there may be others, but this is my last one this morning, that we may need to hear a word of assurance 
from an authority figure that we are forgiven. Now, I think the Roman Catholics have a great advantage here with their practice of sacramental confession and absolution. But I don't think that we Protestants are at a disadvantage because we believe in the authority of Scripture and uh, it is quite possible for us to request from a Christian minister or a Christian counsellor or a close Christian friend that wonderful verse of Scripture which we've already read in our service this morning that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How wonderful to hear those words and know that we are forgiven. But you see, there is something on our part that must be done as well as clearing away the hindrances. And that's true repentance. Now, I want to bring my own confession to you this morning, something very naughty I did many years ago, and uh, it's stuck in my mind ever since. And um, I want to give apologies to any people here this morning who are either Roman Catholics or former Roman Catholics, because I'm going to tell you something that a good Protestant Baptist should never do to a Roman Catholic. Here we go. My first year training to the, from the ministry in Spurgeon's College, and uh, we were all invited to go to Dagenham to conduct a mission uh, in uh, the four Baptist churches in Dagenham. And the uh, student body and the uh, tutors were divided up into four teams. And I was in a team that went to uh, uh, Wood Lane Baptist Church in uh, Dagenham. And uh, we decided on our team that we'd set up a coffee bar for young people every evening in the church hall. And uh, so uh, each evening we'd sit down with a cup of coffee with the young people who came in and we'd chat to them and share the Christian message with them. One evening, I found myself talking not to a young person, but to a child who had come in. I think he must have been about 10 or 11 years old. In the course of conversation, it emerged that he was a Roman Catholic. Ah, this is where the naughty bit starts, you see. As a good Baptist, I have wondered all my life, first of all, were Roman Catholic children required to go to confession? And if so, what were they required to confess? And I thought, here is my big opportunity to find out. And I said to this poor boy, aged 10 or 11, you're a Roman Catholic, yes. Um, do you go, have to go to confession? yes. Well, what sort of things do you have to confess? Oh, he said, you, you tell the priest you've been scrumping, and he then says you're forgiven, and then you go out and you carry on scrumping. <laughs> now, you can imagine why I've remembered that all those years. 
Now, I think it could be fairly said that that young man had not yet learned what true repentance was about. Now, I hope with all my heart, and I, I, I really do hope, that as he grew older, it will be explained to him a little bit more what true repentance was. Psalm 51 that we read earlier is one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible as an expression of genuine repentance. And there are elements in it that we can learn from. King David, who wrote this psalm, had committed adultery with a lady called Bathsheba. And he had instructed Joab, the commander of his army, to put Bathsheba's husband, who was a soldier, in the front line of battle when they were fighting against a tribe called the Ammonites. Inevitably, Bathsheba's husband was killed in battle and King David was able to marry Bathsheba. And he received a visit from the prophet Nathan, who said to him, David, you have done wrong. Psalm 51, I'm sure it wasn't written on the spot, but I'm sure it was written afterwards and uh, expresses David's feelings about what he had done and his powerful reading. I want to share with you four steps in the process of true repentance. And I've used alliteration because I think perhaps it may be easy for uh, remembrance. First of all, in true repentance, uh, repentance, there needs to be an acknowledgement of wrongdoing, which involves acceptance of personal responsibility. Acknowledge responsibility. And so David in Psalm 51 says, I know my transgressions. And secondly, an apology, which expresses genuine remorse. Apology remorse. Ideally, an apology to the person we have wronged. And if that's not possible, and obviously it wasn't with David, to a Christian minister or a Christian counselor or directly to God himself. And so David makes his apology to Nathan. I have sinned, he says. And Nathan pronounces the word of absolution. God has forgiven you. That's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And thirdly, making amends by way of restitution if loss or damage has been caused. Amends by restitution. Now obviously this is not here in Psalm 51. David could not bring back a dead man. But nevertheless, it can be highly desirable and it can help to lift the burden. And fourthly, there needs to be an alteration of attitudes and behavior, which represents a true renewal of lifestyle. And so David in Psalm 51 says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The final outcome, which is not one of the steps, but hopefully what actually results, I haven't put this on screen, It's an acceptance by the person we've upset and offended that leads to reconciliation. And certainly that is true of when we are truly repentant towards God. So I conclude, is forgiveness possible? Yes. 
God's promise and guarantee of his forgiveness is the cross of Jesus. As the old hymn puts it, he died that we might be forgiven. And that, of course, is another sermon, but not now. And is it possible to feel forgiven? Yes, it is. And how do I know? I want to take you right back to my friend Chaz, whom I mentioned at the beginning. Chaz is now a very committed Christian. He's been faithfully married to his second wife for over 20 years, and he's recently completed a significant piece of Christian service overseas. Chaz has found forgiveness, and so can we. When King David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, that is exactly what God can do for us.